Welcome back, everybody. We've got a bonus episode here for you today. This comes from Con of Thrones 2017, and it features yours truly, as well as Jim McGeehan, also known as Something Like a Lawyer, also known as Lord Jim the Fortuitous, and also the host of the Two Wage War podcast, which is great stuff, kind of a new show. Highly recommend checking it out if you like what you're hearing from this panel. So not only is it a sampling of what to expect from Jim's podcast, but it's a sampling of what you might expect to see from a general perspective at any of these conventions that you see myself or Ashea or Sean or any of the other community members at. It's kind of basically what you can expect. So even though this happened at Con of Thrones 2017, you could expect it at future cons such as Ice and Fire Con, which is the next one we'll be at in April 2018. Without any further ado, check it out, and we hope to see you at a con in the future. If not, well, we'll try to bring as much of it as possible to you like this. So this is uh, Hail the Conquering Hero, and this is an analysis of the Wars of Westeros from the dawn of the actual setting until the, well, the upcoming future wars. Uh, so the first wars we actually have would be the giants versus the children of the forest. And as you might see, that's actually very much Stone Age type fighting. And you can see with the children of the forest having woodland color coloration, very good natural camouflage in the forest. Giants are very big, very strong. They don't have very good eyesight. So I could imagine that the children of the forest would typically be using those obsidian arrowheads to try and shoot down giants, because if the giants got close, well, I bet they could just crush them like grapes. So, uh, But the children of the forest actually have a great long war with the first men, and that actually, it does mirror a lot of the uh, Iroquois and Creek wars with the uh, English and French and Spanish than when they came to the eastern coast of the United States. There's kind of a, a trope slash caricature of the Iroquois, you know, very, very, uh, you know, woodland, uh, you know, the longhouse and all that. And that, all that is true. They were actually very, very uh, conscious of the environment that they were in. Um, but you also got to see this religious element play out with the green seers who actually probably have a very, very tremendous military application for using the heart trees and the trees with the faces in them to spot out enemy or first men encampments and troop formations. So if you actually think about that, the first men knocking over and burning down the weirwoods with the faces carved in them, it, it does have a religious aspect to it, but you can actually also see a practical military application for trying to blind the first, or trying to blind the children of the forest, so they don't get ambushed. Because as I said, these are very small, naturally colored people that can hide in the forest very well. So you better believe that the children of the forest are really good at striking you in the middle of the night. Hey, Aziz, sorry, you were just a little late, so I decided to start because I know we have a lot, a lot going. So the children of the forest probably have tremendous ability to ambush. Uh, people that don't have very good night uh, vision, which happens to be all human beings, as well as just with bad vision altogether, which would be the giants. So you can imagine that that would be the military st uh, strategy of the children of the forest. We're talking about military strategy of the children, eh? That sounds yes. fun. Well, we decided, well, they, we did say that there's supposed to be wars of all the history, so I decided to go back as far as possible. <laughs> Back even before the uh, trees were fighting with the rocks. Yeah, um, that's a great point. The the children of being beings of nature would be adept at, you know, what we would call, I guess, guerrilla tactics now. Right. Yeah. Insurgency is what we call them now. Yeah. But. And I suppose that part of the cutting down of the trees and clearing away the forest is a way to take away that that advantage by having less forest for them to hide in. And uh, so it's kind of a, that's a long way to wage a campaign by just cutting down all the trees. But yeah. And interestingly <laughs> enough, that campaign was actually resolved by the first men adopting the nameless gods of nature, the old gods, and taking the religion, including the carving of uh, heart trees, into, into their own society. And as we see with Brendan Bloodraven, the mankind can actually become subsumed into the Weirwood network and become green seers. So it's, an, in a way, a cultural victory for the children of the forest because they become, if you believe, as it's a very common theory, that the Weirwood network is the subsumed consciousness of the green seers, those with the green sight. 
then they're in fact children of the forest and first men are becoming this huge gestalt entity that spreads over where all the heart trees reach. And it could be that what we've seen, not just the cultural mergings, but maybe uh, a little crossbreeding as well. It's possible that, the, say, the Kranich men are yes. some sort of fusion mm -hmm. of uh, the bloodlines there. Or, or the keepers uh, on the, uh, the Isle of Faces that might have uh, a cross-generation that has over time become a sort of hybrid race. And to your point about the, uh, the first men, part of their victory was taking on the religion of the old gods. This is a very common thing throughout history because there's it's one thing to beat another nation's armies and but holding their and holding their nation conquering it and fully subverting it is a whole nother matter. Someone like Robert didn't, you know, he he didn't have to change the way the kingdom was run, but he's a good example of someone that had no idea what he was doing after the fighting was over. Now, a very common strategy in real world from real world conquerors as well as a Song of Ice and Fire Conquerors, because George knows the real world very well, he's a very he's a big student in history, mm -hmm. is that the religion of the local people is one of the hardest things to subjugate. So very commonly, the leader, in order to fully be seen as a real leader, as a legitimate leader, he adopts that religion. Yeah, and that was especially true for the Achaemenid Persians, especially the early ones like Cyrus the Great, who specifically would go to Egypt in the regalia of the Egyptian high priests and lead the sacred ceremonies of the Egyptians, not changing anything. I mean, later I think it was Cambyses, they said, actually drove a, a dagger into the heart of the sacred bull, which is why the Egyptians revolted at that time. <laughs> but, you know, generally speaking, if you stab somebody's god, they're not going to be too, too pleased. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the history of the most successful empires in the world uh, had very similar, for the most part, attitudes towards religion, which was do what you want, Worship who you want, as with a few exceptions. For example, the Mongols said, you worship any god you want, any god you want, but you also have to worship, you have to ask that god, whoever they are, to, to protect the Khan. <laughs> yep. Yep, no, that's, that's, that's very true. Um, so they were tolerant. Basically, basically it when it comes to the Mongols or the Persians, it's worship whoever you want. Just make sure you don't uh, foment any subversion and pay your taxes. Yeah, and that's what the Druids were an example of why the Romans extinguished the Druids because they didn't, they weren't, they weren't cool with that. All the other religions they subjugated were like, all right, we'll just do our thing and give you taxes. But the Druids were like, nah, we're going to fight back. So that's, yeah, and that didn't go very well for them because, you know, it's the Roman Empire. But Aegon the Conqueror, perfect example. Yes. The most famous conqueror probably that we know of in A Song of Ice and Fire. He was a worshiper of the Valyrian religion, but in order to fully be seen as a really legitimate king, not only did he take on the seven as his own religion, but he was crowned by the High Septon. Yes. And he made this, this was very important to me, this very public. It was like the gods are anointing him. You know, this is who, this is where I get my claim from. Everyone else from, from then on is going to get their claim from Aegon, having a bloodline to him. But the initial guy is like, the gods are the ones giving me this right. And that's what they're kind of telling the public. Uh, Aegon's Conquest is actually a good thing. Uh, Aegon's Conquest is basically a fantasy version of the conquest of England by William the Bastard or William of Normandy, if you happen to have a particular stipulation or, you know, against saying the word bastard. <laughs> um, which I guess... Uh, one of my why, favorite why history podcasts... Why would this series be for you if you didn't... <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorite history podcasters calls him Billy the Conk. That's, that's a good one. <laughs> Uh, but there's actually, in the World Book of Ice and Fire, they actually released a play-by-play -play of Aegon's Conquest. And I was actually really pleased by this because George drew from a lot of different sources to actually go by Aegon's Conquest. One of the first, uh, or first attacks that he went against was against uh, Black Heron. And all we knew about Black Heron before was he was in the castle, then he burned to death. <laughs> Great. Okay, that's cool. I mean, yeah, cool dragon. But that doesn't really give me anything. Then we got two more battles. The first one being uh, the Battle of the Reeds, which was a failed commando raid. And then the second one, which was on the lakeshore of the God's Eye, which was actually a successful commando raid by two of Black Heron's sons who sailed over by night and then burnt down Aegon's camp when he slept. And I was thinking, what was that? And those, both of those, are actually, believe it or not, World War II battles that were adapted into fantasy. And by the way, George does this all the time. Like, uh, The Sworn Sword is a Western that's adopted into the medieval times. So he is a big fan of saying, let's get X and then add some dragons and throw it in the Middle Ages and let's see what happens. So <laughs> yeah. the failed one is the Battle of Yep, 
uh, yep, I can't pronounce it. D J E P P E. Uh, Yepe. It's. I'm sorry for anyone who was that. No, that's Ypres. That's actually. No, no, it's a different. It's a different one. Uh, but that's also in Belgium. Uh, and that was a failed commando raid that actually failed because of a lack of support. And the Germans or the Nazis were able to actually fortify that and just basically shot down all of the poor uh, UK commandos as they were landing. But the successful one was actually the battle of or the San Nazaire raid, which was called the raid. It's one of the best commando raids in history, where they sailed at night and attacked a Nazi shipyard. They actually uh, rigged up a boat full of bombs and sailed it right into the dam. And it didn't explode for about six hours afterwards. They were actually interrogating some of the captured commandos when the boat actually blew. If you ever get a chance, you should really check out the uh, the Saint Nazaire raid. It's one of the greatest special <laughs> operations stories that of all really time. That sounds really cool. Uh, um, then you have the Stormlands. Go ahead. And that was the they actually attacked at the battle. What was that river called? I can't remember the name of the river. The it's not the. Uh, Mm, I can't remember either. Okay, well, it was in the it was in the Kings well what would later be called the Kingswood and the the Stormlanders led by three houses waited until Oris Baratheon sent half of his forces over then attacked from both sides right when they were in the middle of attacking killed about a thousand of them sent the rest of them scrambling back to the Aegon Fort. That is the battle of Teutonberg Forest which is actually a Roman battle, one of the famous Roman battle, one of the famous Roman defeats. Three, lo- three legion standards were lost. Apparently, Augustus wandered the walls, or wandered the halls of the Roman palace, beating his head against the wall and saying, Varro, Varro, give me back my legions. <laughs> Made him crazy. Now, one really amazing thing about this, Jim points out that these, all these historical parallels and some of these things ha- apply to historical battles. Now, we're all, especially anyone who's reread the books, especially if you've reread them more than once, you notice things you didn't notice before sometimes. Yeah. And that's really fun. You're like, oh, I caught something I didn't catch before. This is like a reference. This is this and that. But the same thing can happen when you're reading about real history because you can sometimes you'll find something that you're like, hey, George borrowed this yep. for A Song of Ice and Fire. And it's just that same kind of, oh, wow, this is really neat. I've discovered something new. <laughs> I had that realization listening to a podcast called History on Fire mm-hmm. um, by a podcaster named Daniele Bellelli, and he's podcasting about Mesoamerica, ancient Mesoamerica, which mm-hmm. is a topic I don't know a lot about. And there's an episode where he's describing this really Machiavellian old man, 96, lived to, lived to his early 100s. His, uh, I can't pronounce his name, but the translation is Angry Stone Face. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. So you can understand why this guy was a badass. But the thing is, the more I hear, listen to this story... It, check out these details. He's, he's a really old guy, carried around, very frail, uh, portrayed a number of people, was really good at pretending to be uh, a vassal, but then rising up at the right time, at the opportune time to take to seize power. And it's said that the thing that finally broke him was when his family turned on itself. Mm-hmm. And so who does that remind you of, right? Walter Frey, right? As if, so I was, as I was listening to this, I'm like, man, this sounds so much like Walter Frey. And I'm just wondering to myself, I wonder if George R. R. Martin knows his story. I wonder if he borrowed a little bit of this history to create this character of Walter Frey. Or it might be a coincidence, but there's so many nuggets like that out there in the world, <laughs> in the real world history that, that connect to A Song of Ice and Fire. And he does love Mesoamerican history, as you can see with his use of obsidian, which was actually a very, very important thing in the Aztec and Maya cultures in Mesoamerica in Central America, they used the obsidian as a tool and a weapon. Uh, obsidian is too brittle to actually make into swords, so you could actually see what they used was the mahu, mahuitl. I'm sorry, I, I cannot pronounce Nahatl. <laughs> Um I apologize. But so basically, it looks like a long wooden paddle, and then they have obsidian blades. Which, just FYI, they still make scalpels, precision scalpels out of obsidian today. It's, it's sharper than to, steel. To let, to let you know just how sharp this is. It can cut on the molecular level. Yes, it's crazy. So, <laughs> so just think: before carbon steel and all that, you had uh, Mesoamerican cultures with super scalpel, uh, super knives. But so basically, it was a long wooden paddle with obsidian <clears throat> blades. It was like a saw when they used it. Very, yeah. very scary if you ever get a chance to check it out. And if you out. think about that culture, they didn't have metallurgy so or very limited metallurgy, so having weapons of obsidian were more effective because you weren't going to ram it into a you know a breastplate that would break it. There was mostly just very light armor. So even if the blade broke, you would pen- it would penetrate yep. and cause a lot of damage. Yeah, a lot of obsidian shards into the uh, wounds. Not, not a good thing. Yes, sir. Uh, I'm glad you brought up William the Bastard because something I'm 
a social studies teacher myself, and something we talk about in class and social studies and history is about cultural diffusion and the mixing, which you guys have talked about already. Um, but I was wondering, as mostly a show watcher myself, mm -hmm. do we see a lot of influences from Aegon Conquest on uh, Westeros? Unfortunately, not. No, not not too much. But uh, the thing that's the big differences between William the Bastard and Aegon the Conqueror was that Aegon actually had a very limited number of Valyrian vassals that which he needed to actually spread around feudal prizes, which is why he actually did what I call the Aegon Doctrine, which is, if you surrender to me, I will confirm all of your lands. I will change as little as possible. It will be a almost seamless transition, and that was the same. Or that's that's why when the Lannister surrendered, when the Aarons surrendered, when the Starks surrendered, these were high kings and they still controlled the exact same borders, it's just they no longer could wear a crown and call themselves a king. So yes, that, that from a prestige standpoint, that's actually very damaging, but from an actual day-to-day -day operations, Aegon walked around and had six maesters, six or seven maesters, advising them, what was the local law here? Not, I'm going to bring my legal code, my foreign thing, and that actually really smoothed over the generation until Jaharis the first, which then you would have two generations of people who have born and died knowing only the Targaryen overlordship, and that was when he pushed with his legal code. That's when they were you people were kind of used to it. But right after Aegon's conquest, yeah. every house had had thousands of years of either self-rule or relative independence. There's never been anything like the Seven Kingdoms before. So it was just a very alien concept, and as proud as the Westerosi are, they're not happy about being ruled by what they perceive as a foreigner. Uh, a lot of them, certainly the, the faith had a lot of problems with... Aegon himself wasn't a product of incest, but his children were, and of course they hated the dragons. They didn't like this They didn't like the polygamy stuff. either. Yeah, they certainly hated the polygamy, yeah. And... I mean, it was a bigger deal back then, especially because these things weren't more like eventually people kind of got some of the Targaryen habits were kind of accepted. If they weren't ever truly accepted, it was like, OK, well, let them do that. They're gross, but oh, well. Yeah. But some of these other things never sat well, uh, ever. <laughs> now, the next big war we have in Targaryen history is the Dance of the Dragons, which is actually a fantasy remix of the Anarchy, which was a civil war in England between uh, Empress Matilda of the Holy Roman Empire and Stephen of Blois, who was a count of, um, well, Blois, uh, <laughs> which was a, a, a holding in northern France, which for a long time was actually controlled by England. Um, and that was considered to be a very bloody battle. According to the chroniclers of the day, it was when Christ and all his saints slept, uh, which can give you a hint of just how brutal it was, because it was a lot of not even just semi-official chevauchets with just people who are just like, you know what, those guys support the other guy. Let's go and raid him and take all their stuff. And then you had people who were forced to collaborate because it's either collaborate or we'll kill you. And then they, then when the other side goes into power, it's like, hey, you're a collaborator. And then they were killed. So it was not a very good time. And just like the anarchy, so Stephen of Blois eventually won, but as part of the, tr the peace treaty, he accepted that uh, Henry, which who was Matilda's son, would be his heir, and that was kind of the closing up. And we see that with Aegon II being uh, dying on the uh, iron, or dying by the plots of Corlys Valerian, and then uh, having Aegon III come back, and then Cregan Stark, who was the unsung hero and the most awesome guy in the backstory, <laughs> uh, becoming just kind of cutting all, just kind of you know Gordian nodding through all the problems, cutting and all saying, the heads. <laughs> all right, we're at peace now. Yeah, the uh, I think it's a lot of really great parallels there. Another one is the the whole idea of one of the main drivers of the anarchy was that they the a lot of the nobles didn't want to have a queen; they wanted to have a king, and some of them just used it as an excuse. They thought that that was a reason people would buy into. Some of them genuinely didn't want a queen, but some of them just thought, hey, this is a political thing cause I can get behind because yep. I have goals and uh, yeah and. That was where Stephen came from. And Stephen wasn't a very good claimant. He was, he was not smart. <laughs> he was brave uh, and like well-mannered and, and, and just polite. like And just like uh, Aegon II not being very uh, clever, but his, uh, his mother, Alison Hightower, actually his mother, uh, Stephen of Blois' mother, was Adela of Normandy, who was one of the greatest female politicians of her age. Very, very smart. And had her brother, I can't remember the brother's name, 
was actually the one who was in charge of their armies, which mirrors Ormond Hightower heading up the Hightower levees. Now, this one is also very interesting because you see the draconic plur- plur- proliferation, and this actually very mir- very much mirrors uh, George's actual feelings on war, as he mentions about the Vietnam. Uh, he he was a conscientious objector in Vietnam, and he kind of says, you know, about World War One, was it really worth it to get rid of the Austro-Hungarian Empire that we killed an entire generation of young European men? And so that's you can kind of see with the Dance of the Dragons, because you see uh, Rainra or Rhaenyra, I'm the only one I think in the entire world who calls her Rhaenyra, uh, <laughs> and Aegon II are just objectively, they're terrible candidates. They're selfish, they're petty, yeah. they're just awful people. But then you have, you you go and you look down a step lower, and you have Adam Valerian, and he's, he's a brave and loyal guy, and he throws himself into death to prove that he was loyal for, you know, to prove that he was always loyal because he always was, because two other people betrayed Rainra. And then you have Daron the Daring, who is a young, courteous, noble person. I what the actual Westerosi ideal of a good king is, and he's throwing himself into death in the service of his petty, selfish brother. Yeah. You have good men dying for in the cause of bad ones. As Kevin and Lannister says, or Vara says to Kevin Lannister, a good and man in service to a bad one. You can boss. really see kind of George's opinions on war kind of brought to the forefront with the Dance of the Dragons. It's one of the things I I don't know if anybody listens to Dan Carlin. But when he says, whenever oh, yeah. you listen to some, whenever you listen to somebody speaking about history, remember what they've seen. So whenever you're reading something like Song of Ice and Fire, always remember what George has seen, and that's where he's coming from. Yeah, that's a huge factor, and and it's um, it's certainly important to remember the author, and it's just as important to any time you're looking at evidence to to make sure you check your sources. And this is uh, really. Uh, Important concept as well. The whole going back a little bit to what you said about the anarchy. The we we hear this concept of the king's peace. It's really important. The king is the one who makes sure people aren't just killing each other all the time. It's it's you if you do if you break the law, you answer to the king. Well, when there's a civil war, uh, who's king? Who is in charge of mm-hmm. dispensing justice? Well, opportunistic people realize no one is, and they just go out and start wrecking each other and stealing things because the king is too busy fighting the other king or the queen or whoever, and they can't spare any resources to keep the locals in line, and so it's bad. It's very bad. So, again, when Aegon the Conqueror was just allowing people to keep doing what they were doing, it's really important because the, maybe the existing kings hated it, but the common people, their lives hardly changed at all, if at all, literally. And that's an important distinction because if you if you can keep the common people out of it, then they'll just, like Jorah says, they just want to be left alone if they let the High Lords play their Game of Thrones. But if they're being raided and attacked by you know bandits and no one's keeping them in control, then it's the worst situation imaginable. And so we can actually talk about another civil war, which is actually the mirror opposite, which would be the first Blackfire Rebellion. And I know Aziz and I had a two-hour-long podcast episode. You had, what, five episodes? We're up to six now. Yeah. now up, to, up to six episodes on, on the Blackfire Rebellion. But the first Blackfire Rebellion is so fascinating because instead of having two bad candidates, you actually have two very different but arguably very honorable candidates – who are being egged on by some of the more worse impulses of their counselors, Bloodraven in the case of Daron II, and Bittersteel in the case of Damon Blackfire. And what you also see is that Damon Blackfire actually has, actually was able to set up a mint, who was able to mint his own coinage, which is huge. There are historians who have made their entire careers on single recovered coins of Civil War claimants because it's if you have a mint, it means you have people to staff the mint. You have metal to make the coins from. You can't just seize Daron II's coins and mint them. You're not going to get enough money. So it's a whole operation. So yeah. you can actually see that in, instead of like uh, the Dance of the Dragons, which was almost exclusively revolving around warfare, there was actually a significant amount of bureaucratic building for Bo, uh, for da- uh, Damon, which is why he came within a stone's throw of actually overthrowing uh, they were on the second, and it was only the Battle of the Red Grass Field that decided the whole thing. Yeah, the Blackfire Rebellions are are, are wonderful. Uh, not sh- they. It's interesting with them is that there's some very strong historical parallels, yes. but f- within them, there's a lot of parallels to future events in A Song of Ice and Fire itself. Yes, which is really cool because George loves to do. Lo- George is aware of the concept that history repeats itself. You know, yes. not 
strictly speaking, but... It doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. (laughs) Wonderful. (laughs) And, for example, the Damon Blackfire just was convinced that he was the best man to be king. Mm -hmm. Sounds like Renly, right? Renly didn't have a proper claim. He was in the line of succession. Damon Blackfire had Targaryen blood on both sides, so he's like, yeah, you know, there's something to be said there. But mostly it was just about who he was and his character and the fact that he had people telling him that he was worthy of this. And that's a hugely important theme, uh, which is in this fandom, a lot of times we get, we ask or get asked or talk about if this person and this person dies, who inherits this? Well, unless it's simple, unless there's a simple answer, there isn't, no. the legal aspect almost ceases to matter at all. If there's any confusion over a claim, the answer is civil war or war or fighting or some sort of conflict. Yes. And that's, that's always how it comes down to, which is why, um, I think it was Pompey the Great who said, don't quote laws to men with swords. Yep. <laughs> and, and, but Pom- Pompey also had another great quote, which was, uh, I love treason, but I hate a traitor. Because he, 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 right he, he had his own, uh, oh, uh, I've that would be Aegon the Unworthy, yeah. and that was he- what helped uh, further along, uh, Damon Blackfire's claim, also the allegations that Daron II was actually born of incest, or of a uh, bastard incest between Aemon the Dragon Knight and Queen Nerys. Yeah. Because if that's the case, if they're all bastards, well then it's just who's the best bastard? <laughs> and Damon Black, it might as well be Damon Blackfire. Yeah. I mean, if you're a, you know, if you're a Damon Blackfire supporter. <laughs> and yeah, now- and then he, okay, so Aegon the Fourth is the king here we're talking about. Aegon the Unworthy was his nickname. And, yeah, like Jim said in my series on the Blackfire Rebellions, the first episode is on him because he's kind of the, the father of it all, uh, quite literally, because they're his bastards that, that, <laughs> that fought, his bastards and his non And his trueborn true kids, yeah. Yeah, but he did try to tell the realm that his own trueborn son wasn't his son, that it was his brother and his wife that, that you know, made this child. Which makes genetic testing really hard, even <laughs> even if they, that existed. Uh, yes, actually, the Blackfire Rebellions were, well, I mean, in terms of incest, not really, because that was considered a sin by the Catholic Church. Um, but, um, oh, actually, that happened all the time. Uh, if you actually, uh, if you ever see anybody in English uh, history with the last name Fitzroy, Fitzroy is actually a literal translation of Fitzroy, the son of the king. So, um, natural the, son. Now, the actual first Blackfire Rebellion is the fir- is the the, Baron- the baronial wars in England, and Simon or Damon Blackfire is a good stand-in for Simon de Montfort, who was a very popular um, who was a very popular king, and um, the actual uh, black later Blackfire Rebellions is actually uh, the historical parallel would be the Jacobite Rebellions. There was actually, believe it or not, if you remember in Duncan Egg when. Who was it that said they saluted to the king across the water? Um, they, oh, um, I can't uh, remember who it was, but somewhat in the Mystery Night. No, not the Mystery. Yes, the Mystery Night. No, no, was it? Yes, the Mystery Night. The Mystery Night, the third one. Uh, who actually held up his glass and saluted to the king across the water? That was actually a historical toast to the Jacobites when you would hold up your glass above a body of water. Because the Jacobite rebellions, or the Jacobite pretenders, were usually in Brittany, which is that, if you actually look at France and it kind of has a little spoke on the northwest side, that's Brittany right there. Nice. So that's that's actually that. Should we go to the War of the Nine Penny Kings? Sure. So the War of the Nine Penny Kings, I actually like this one because it's actually kind of a Westerosi all-star list. <laughs> you see... You see Ares II, before he was mad, which if you actually read in the, the world book about all these great schemes he had... He actually sounds like a kind of a really cool guy to be around, you know, you know, hanging around by a campfire, drinking, talking. Uh, you no know, wonder Tywin liked him at first. Uh, yeah. They got along great. Yeah, Early Tywin on. Lannister, Stephen Baratheon, Brynden Tully, uh, probably actually the unnamed Princess of Dorne was there as well. Unfortunately, don't know her name, but um, they're not mentioned that she's absent. She would be the one in charge. So that is actually what I like to call uh, Westeros' splendid little war. Mm-hmm. which is actually in American history. That's the Spanish-American War. Well, that was actually what Teddy Roosevelt called the, the you know, his conception of 
the splendid little war of the Spanish-American War. The real war was actually a lot of yellow fever, but we won't <laughs> go into that. Um, but it was basically a bringing together of all of the disparate elements of Westeros. You know, you had Northmen going and, you know, singing around the campfire, drinking with Dornishmen, telling all the local stories and all that. So you had a lot of this sense of pan-Westeroso unity. In a way, Jaharis II, as forgettable as he was, was probably the king who actually embodied Aegon's vision of one land under one king. The only problem was he wasn't there. <laughs> And that's where you got Southron ambitions and the plots of Rickard Stark, which actually lead into Robert's Rebellion. But you actually get this kind of camaraderie in war of this nation together, and we're all just people, and that's why you get all of these fosterages. So in the splendid little war is uh not is uh nine the nine penny kings for Westeros because it's it's this war of good feelings, you know, despite the fact that you're you know, a lot of people actually died, but you know I mean as Septon Maribald said, you know, nine nine penny nine penny kings. I never saw a king nor earned a penny. <laughs> but a war, that it was. Yep. Yeah, the uh it's interesting like Jim says, that there aren't examples of Westeros being attacked by what's mostly uh, a foreign considered power. a foreign power when they were united. If you want to go back far enough, you could say the first men attacking were or the Andals attacking power, or the Andals, yeah, like later. But that those that at neither of those points was Westeros seven kingdoms. They weren't united, so they didn't have the capacity to fight together against a common enemy. I mean, when the Andals were invading the Vale, that's where they started. First men elsewhere didn't care. What do we care about that? What do the Dornishmen and uh, what do the first men Dornishmen care about? What's happening there? What do the first men in the north care about the Vale being invaded by Andals? I mean, some people probably would see the long-term threat, but for the most part, they're just going to be content to ignore it. Like a lot of Westerosi are ignoring the threat in the North right now in the main story, for example. And that's an even, that's a much bigger threat, right? Than, than just an invading army. If they could ignore that, then they can ignore anything. So the, uh, the concept of foreign invader uniting against a foreign invader is really strong. And that ties into exactly what Illyrio and Varys were trying to do with Aegon the Sixth is, send Viserys, the crazy Viserys, in with Dothraki, foreign Dothraki yes. army, coming in, ravaging the land, being all, letting everyone, triggering everyone's xenophobia and allowing their guy to come in and be the hero, the conquering hero in this case, to sweep away the Dothraki. And yeah, I jumped ahead of the timeline there, but no, this is a concept that's, that, that really relates to what, to the, to the, to what was happening in the, in the War of the Nine Penny Kings. So, that's something that a lot of conquerors underestimate yeah. the 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 fact that that the people will unite against them um and that was uh so that's a that's an important theme throughout history that George really understands so we have that to look forward to Daenerys is coming with Dothraki uh, or a horde of relorists who you know yeah, worship a very her scary foreign religion and won't get along with the faith of the seven at all <laughs> uh, so that is going to be a big problem for Daenerys and her dragons, which she doesn't even have full control over yet. So yep. it's, it's she's scary. Yep. <laughs> it's a Western, other than her Unsullied, which are model soldiers. That's uh, <laughs> how, how are we for time? We have twenty minutes. Oh, great! So uh, Robert's Rebellion is probably the the pinnacle fantasy war. It's a good predecessor war, and up until Tywin Lannister shows up, it's one of the one of the better wars in 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 Westerosi history. You know, kind of fantasy and romantic, and then of course Tywin Lannister says, "I am reality." <laughs> um, but you can actually see Robert actually is one of the more impressive candidates because unlike anybody else, Robert actually unseats the Targaryens. Rainra couldn't do it. Damon Blackfire couldn't do it. None of the other Blackfires could do it. But Robert Baratheon, who has what? He's third, three generations removed down from, from actual to an actual Targaryen, is able to do it. He creates a coalition of four of the great, uh, great powers or great, uh, land, uh, regions of Westeros. The biggest one other than that was only three. So you can actually see Robert going from battle to battle saying, you know, I am actually a great warrior. And you can see him using this feudal politics, this culture of martial virtue to say, I am the legitimate king. Because, of course, the last time anyone saw Ares II, he had all of these crazy fingernails. He was, you know, disheveled, shouting, crying, all this other yeah. stuff. Mm -hmm. None of that was actually the cultural ideal of what you held up to be a good Westerosi Noble. It was um, Lord Sunderland, I think, who said it best. He fights the way a king 
should fight. Yeah. And that is good from the higher levels, the nobles, and the small folk. If that's someone you want to believe in, wars are built, especially rebellions. Was it uh, Force Awakens? Rebellions are built on hope? Uh, Rogue One. Rogue One. Rogue One. Rogue One. Sorry about that. Rebellions <laughs> are built on hope. But what do you think Robert's Rebellion was built on when they were hiding in Stony Sept, going from house to house, while John Connington was trying? The, the small folk didn't sell him out. They had every incentive to dime him out. And why do you think they didn't do it? Because they believed in him. Yeah. He he was a they they you could say they loved him in a sense they he was what they thought a king should be of course he turned out to be a bad king but as far as the uh, the, the, the potential the, the potential, potential looked amazing even Cersei was you know just thought he was amazing until muscle, she got to muscle know him. like a maiden's dream yeah. Said, yeah. <laughs> and uh, Lyanna knew better because she already knew him ahead of time but most people were just yeah just mad impressed with him he multiple times turned opponents. Yeah. Uh, to his side, even after they had killed someone of their blood, which is almost un not unprecedented, but it's really rare because blood feuds are like people take that so seriously in Westeros. You killed my father, you killed my sister, you killed my brother. They they care about that for generations. And Robert turns people around in like a couple of days or in an afternoon over lunch, you know. <laughs> and uh, that is a huge part of any conqueror is the way they get people to follow them. It isn't always about logic or claims. It's about that character. Damon Blackfire was the same. He people worshipped him. He was the an Adonis like figure who was incredibly brave, incredibly virtuous, virile. He had seven sons by the time he was like twenty six. Uh, seven sons and daughters. Yeah, and at least two or three daughters. Yeah, so just poor just, poor Rohan of Tyra churning them out. Yeah. <laughs> so apparently, yeah, he also yeah. So uh, and just all the things you can say that people appreciate about the warrior code and the embodying the warrior as far as the meaning this the, the god aspect of the seven the warrior and that's kind of what renly was trying to be i mean he didn't he wasn't a fighter but he was trying to you know he was people liked him people he was popular brienne was a good example she yes. was just head over, head over heels. heels because he was he seemed to be the right man he seemed to be the the worthy person whether he had the right claim or not so this is a very common theme that claims claims are just an excuse sometimes or they're they're a helper they're it never almost never rests on that yeah and that lack of galvanizing force is what we see in the War of the Five Kings. Stannis has the legalistic claim, but he's so dour and unpopular and so just – he's got a, a chip on his shoulder the size of the Brooklyn Bridge. You No one wants to go and hang out with this guy because it's like, oh, great. You did what you're supposed to. Cool. And then, and then he walks on. And then you have Renly, who is popular, but has no real legal fiction to actually do this. And everyone's – you know, to, what is it uh, – Elena Tyrell says, we shouldn't have done this. He was an idiot. And, and <laughs> They won't listen to me. <laughs> and so, you know, you sure you have the Knights of Summer being swept up by his romantic imagery, but then you have these other, you know, these fence, these fence sitters and these bet hedgers, and they're like, well, <laughs> you know, if, if, he, if, he says, if he says, well, I'm cool, so I'm going to be the king, what happens when my younger brother says, you know what, I'm cool, I want to be the lord? Yeah. Oh, no. So, and then you have Rob, who doesn't want to be the, who has, you know, an ironclad loyalty of the north and the riverlands, but he's going for the independence, so nobody wants to support him. And then you have, obviously, Balon Greyjoy, who's just like, it's time to make the Iron Islands great again. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, um, so you have this lack of galvanizing force, which is actually really good for the crisis of the third century, the collapse of the Western Roman Empire in just when there was, a, there was a year of the four emperors, there was a year of the five emperors, there was a year of the six emperors. There was just emperors popping up all over the place, and the Praetorian Guard were just essentially sometimes just murdering emperors and auctioning off the empiracy to just whoever could pay, whoever could pay for it. So you <laughs> can see silly. how this lack of stability, this culture of corruption that was built by Robert's neglect and that was only made even worse when Joffrey took over, just it was rotten from the inside out. So you had all of these claimants coming out of nowhere, people stealing everything, people just terrorizing. You know, Tywin would just launch a chevauchee. Let's go and burn the riverlands, half of the riverlands from the God's Eye of the Red Fork. Because that's my son because, was because Tyrion by was because Tyrion yeah. was captured by Catelyn. Like, now, hell? don't get me wrong; that is probably <laughs> something that's going to happen in a feudal bloodline society. But there's a sense of proportionality to the whole thing. Yeah, and, it's a little much, right? <laughs> and so sure, I guess Tywin, uh, Tywin built his reputation of being the biggest and baddest guy on the block. But then when Rob Stark goes and beats him, you know, pillar to post making him look like an idiot, then no one wants to go and support Tywin Lannister. 
Because, is okay, if you're the biggest and baddest guy, why is this 16-year-old kid making you look like a fool? Meanwhile, the 16-year-old kid is, is inspiring people because he's winning. He's like got that same sort of conquering hero aspect to him that people really dig. He's like, wow, he's a kid. He's winning. He's beating people who are more experienced than him. He's doing it uh, with bravery and strategy. And he's like, what's not to like about that? Right. But then he loses Winterfell, and then that aura of invincibility is broken. Yep. And now we don't believe in Robb Stark. And even if we did believe in Robb Stark, who cares about what – what does the Reach care if the North and Riverlands want to be independent? There's nothing about that that actually helps them. Mm-hmm. So you know, maybe if, they, if Mace Tyrell said, I want to be king of the Reach again, Rob, do you want to go and help out? I'll give you 100,000 guys. <laughs> that might have been a different thing. Yeah, uh, just going back to Stannis for a minute is a perfect example. We talked about how some people over kind of – superseded the need for a claim by just being really popular or great. Stannis is the opposite. He had the claim, but he was so unpopular that people are like, nah, Renly. And of course, once Renly is out of the picture, they're like, well, we kind of have to support Stannis now. Yeah. And they didn't really, they didn't do it in the same way. They were and grudging. Once, it was and then once Tywin showed up, they immediately turned tail because there's no real reason to support him now that he's losing. But yeah. then what happens? Stannis goes to the north and says, you know what? I'm going to act the way a king should act. And then look, now the North are just declaring for Stannis. So as you can see, right. yeah. this, these wages of character are so important, especially in a, in, a, in a form of government like feudalism, where so much of it is bound up in the body of the king, the person of the king. That person means a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and St- it's a good thing about Stannis, too, is that he gets... He got a second chance. He's doing it. He's, he learned from his mistakes, and most of these conquerors do not get a second chance. Nope. That's a huge factor. Uh, we got about 10 minutes. We should talk about Wars of the Roses, probably. Yeah, yeah, let's think of the War of the that's Roses. That's, of course, that one was... of the main comparisons to A Song of Ice and Fire. Um, I think that's something that a lot of you are all familiar with. And really, it's not said without good reason, because it's there are a ton of parallels. I'm sure we can't go through them all. Yeah. But first of all, just starting with the fact that Westeros itself is basically England flipped 180 and made much larger. You've yep. got the wall being uh, a parallel Hadrian, for Hadrian's Hadrian's wall, right? Yep. And you've got... The the Vale is Wales. The original Andals are the Valemen, and the original Britons are basically the Welsh. I'm not the original, but, you know, from their perspective. Yeah, the, the, the native original. Welsh. The native, the native Welsh. Welsh. And their, like, royal seat, uh, the area around it was called Eyrie, E-Y-R-I, instead of, you know, the Eyrie. There's, there's all this, yep. ma- there's just, this is geograph- yeah. uh, geographical parallels. And all they just the tacked on Moorish Spain for Dorne. Yeah, but, there's some know, Welsh marches. And this, then is, this is more George R. R. Martin. He loves the, uh, the, the throw everything into a remix and give everybody, you know, give every other person a, a white wig. <laughs> and make, and then blow it up, Ty. Yeah, uh, oh yeah, make and it then, much then bigger. turn it up to 11, because <laughs> yeah. it's fantasy. Fantasy <laughs> he, is always turned up to 11. George even himself says that he made the wall too big. He was like, yeah, it was too big. Oh well, it doesn't matter, but but it's too big. <laughs> but that's and actually, the War of the Roses is even bigger in the Ur document, the first draft, where actually Jamie Lannister ends up sitting the Iron Throne, which actually much more mirrors Lannister and Stark, who were the Lancastrians and the Yorks. Mm-hmm. So that he decided to go a little bit uh, a little bit away from that, which I actually think is a good thing because we have a lot more characters. You didn't have somebody like Marjorie Tyrell in the original document, and I think I speak for everybody in this room when I say the addition of Marjorie Tyrell. Good choice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like Marjorie. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of characters that parallel the Edward the Fourth. Is Edward the Fourth, right? Yes. Yeah. Black Edward the Fourth. I got to make sure. Oh, yeah, and he, he was a very large man. And he was a, a lead from the front kind of guy. He had a lot in common with Robert. He was, um, known for his bravery, for being just kind of, unbeatable head-to-head. Yeah. And, and then for, he got to f- went to fat in his later years. Yep, and he was a bad, kind of not, not like cruel or... Just absentee. He was like absentee Aries, but kid. like, yeah, like Robert. Just didn't care. Would rather go out and drink and have women and do tournaments and things like that. And sure enough, when he died, there were questions about whether he really married his wife or whether he married this other person. And the, thus we have... The similar type of question with Joffrey's heritage yep. that and that happened in the real world, and, and that opened it up for the uh, for the succession, the War of the Roses, to continue again. Yep, and it, the character of Richard is a lot like Edard, kind of mixed with Stannis a little yep. bit, and uh, very not terribly popular, but respected for being a, a quality commander. 
and um, the mystery of uh, what's what's a good is there any good parallel for the princes in the tower? Is that unfortunately I don't think th- I don't think there's a good one. I think that's more the princes in the tower is who killed Daron the Daring, mm, okay. which again w- George loves to throw history into a blender and then add some dragons. Uh, if you're not familiar, the Richard was in charge of the two the third, heirs, the third, yeah. and they died under his watch and. Oh, there you go. Okay. okay. Well done. Thank That'll you very work. much. That'll work. Yeah. And they, so it's a long historical mystery of whether he did it or whether someone else did it to make him look bad and get him out of the way. Or did it and made it so that he could deny doing it. Honestly. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a lot of permutations of possibility there. The conspiracy theories are great. <laughs> but on the, so on the other side of things, there's the, the claimant Marjorie d'Anjou, her son, very much, uh, she's a little bit of a Cersei figure, and her son was a bit of a Joffrey, but he's not really part of this history that much, but he was kind of of that age. Yeah. Um, but Margaret d'Anjou end up being, being a perennial threat in the side of the Yorks, which mm-hmm. neatly mir- uh, mirrors how Cersei always seems to make things much worse for the Starks. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the reasons uh, Edward rose up in the first place was because of a... Uh, uh, important family member being killed in a kind of a trick, uh, and kind of they're kind of trapped and betrayed. Vaguely reminiscent to what happened to Lord Rickard. Mm-hmm. Vaguely reminiscent. I mean, he wasn't burned to death. There wasn't any. Yeah. Well, is it, it, but again, fantasy is history turned up to eleven. Yeah. So a lot of these familiar elements. What else? We want to open it up for a couple of questions. Yeah, we don't have a lot of time, so let's get six questions. Uh, right here. Yeah, uh, when you mentioned feudalism as kind of embodied in the king and his ability to protect his people, mm-hmm. um, that is one of the reasons we saw feudalism fall apart in yes. Europe, because, you know, the Black Death showed up, all these people are dying, including priests and kings, you know, who's there? Why does it matter anymore? Uh, what kind of disaster do you think it'll take for the small folk of Westeros to realize the same thing? Because it sounds like they've been through several uh, of them. I'm going to say know? probably an invasion of ice demons and their zombie army. <laughs> yeah, I think the long, there's two possibilities. One that's directly on point, which you because you mentioned the Black Death. Yeah, there's a, a lot of scale. evidence that there might be some sort of grayscale epidemic because both of them, it's, it's, it's been mentioned in the northern plot. Uh, you know, the wildlings even bring it up. Yep. Val is terrified of, of Shireen. Of um, which is kind of like really interesting. And John Connington is grayscale. He's coming. So, or is there already. And so there's some potential there for disease to be a big issue. Uh, but yeah, the, the long night, that'll the just long night destroy all up. infrastructure and, and everything, I would think. Uh, back gentleman here. back. Uh, yes, the dance ended when, um, Rhaenyra's son married Aegon II's daughter. Mm-hmm. Is that supposed to be an analog to the War of the Roses where there was a historic Lancaster marriage? Uh, that was actually that is a little bit uh, established by that, but also a lot of historical conquerors would actually end up marrying into the royal family. I'm particularly remember uh, Alexander the Great married two of Darius the Third's daughters. Actually, one was a daughter, and I think one was a cousin. Or I don't know the the Achaemenid Persians were actually a, a nest of incest anyway, so it's really <laughs> hard to kind of track this, that, or the other thing. Uh, but but you are correct in that the uh, the Lancaster and York, uh, the Roses, make, for being to make the Tudor Rose, is actually a very good parallel between uh, Denaria. No, no, that was, the, that was the second one. Uh, Jahara. Jahara yeah. and uh, Aegon III. Unfortunately, she got killed by Tessario the Tiger. But, <laughs> gentlemen, the blue shirt. Yeah, so looking forward at, uh, when you're talking about the White Walkers, do you envision that that's, I think that's going to be more like a traditional war? Is it going to be like every army in the Seven Kingdoms versus. I don't think so. I think that's actually going to be uh, localized in some hot spots, uh, including there's going to be a battle at Winterfell. Daenerys is probably going to move north after King's Landing to fight the white, a white, uh, encroaching White Walkers and the Trident. I actually believe that Stannis and uh, will be leading the charge in uh, Winterfell, and that is where the Shireen, Iphigenia, uh, Ephi- I think is how you yeah, say it. Yeah, that's exactly what I just gave that theory in the last panel in this room. Okay. Uh, I think... Uh, I don't think there's any historical parallel for an invading army of ice demons. Um, but the... Pro- Oh, that's a good one. The for the sea uh, the sea people. Hey, that's a good one. And then like Egypt does the last stand, and then fighting that last stand, uh, the Egyptian dynasty is so crippled that it died within a couple of generations. Yeah. So that's what I'm kind of hoping to see some sort of. And that that, 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 that <laughs> could work if yeah, again history turned up to eleven. Very good catch. Nice. That's good. Yeah. Uh, gentleman, right here. Yeah. Uh, so 
my interpretation, I read all the books, and my interpretation of your domestic war is war is bad, but also war is not war. So in your experience between what you know of human history and reading all the books in the series, do you think there's, do you have any alternate, I don't know, is, are there any other alternate messages regarding war that George is trying to tell us? War, maybe not as a pessimistic, maybe there's no. a positive. War is, war can be done to achieve good ends, but there is always a cost and the cost is not always paid by the people who decide whether or not to go to war. So if there is sometimes, like he, he says, I would have gone to fight the Nazis, and so would I. I mean, I'm, I actually I was in the military for six years, and I, I went to Afghanistan. Um, there is, you know, you, you don't always, the soldiers don't get to choose whether or not they go to war. The generals get, don't get to choose, you know, aren't usually the ones who pay the price. You can go to war for noble reasons, but there's always going to be a cost and what George is saying is, how dare you, if you forget it? Hmm. Well said. <laughs> All right. Uh, we got time for one more question. One more question. Who's got it? Who wants a ticket? No one wants to go and finish that one out. <laughs> <laughs> that was a pretty good note to end on. <laughs> okay, well, um, I guess we can just uh, end it then. Um, thanks to Jim. Um, did you introduce yourself? Uh, you no, no, actually, that's a good thing. Well, so. well, we'll close that out with an introduction since we didn't start with one. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, my name is uh, Jim. I'm commonly called something like a lawyer. I write for the Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog. You can find us on WordPress, and I specifically answer a lot of Tumblr questions. So especially if you have any military history questions on Tumblr, I can help that. I also have a military history podcast itself called To Wage War, where I focus a lot on the actual experiences of the soldiers who fought individual battles. I specifically try to look for diaries and things like that, so I can actually give the words of the soldiers as they experienced it. I've listened to it. It's good. <laughs> uh, my name is Aziz. I'm a podcaster for History of Westeros. We've been doing podcasts about the backstory of A Song of Ice and Fire, and tr especially trying to connect it to the modern story, modern story, uh, for historical parallels and for mining for uh, trying to figure out what's going to happen. And of course, there's a lot of it. As you all are if, in this room are most likely fans of history, there's a lot there. George has painted, made such a huge backstory. He's put a lot of work into making it what it is. And we like to, that's our uh, goal at History of Westeros is to bring all that out. We've had Jim on as a guest because as you can see, he knows his stuff, especially real military stuff. He gives us a, a great perspective and um, that we, we've been able to kind of apply to A Song of Ice and Fire. And uh, it's a lot of fun. So I think, I think we're being waved off now. So uh, thank yeah. you very much for coming out and we hope you have a, rest, a great time at the rest of the convention. <laughs> Oh no, that's cool. I uh